You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Galatians 3 verse 19, Paul asks, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, even righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do require your grace this morning, Father, if we are to profit from your word. Father, we we require your grace if we're even going to understand these verses. Father, we pray that, Lord, you'd be pleased to bless us. Speak to our hearts, O Father, in a way that we can understand. Meet each of us, O Father, where we are. We're all in different places in terms of our growth, different places in terms of our grasp of the Scriptures. And Father, do what only you can do. Do what only the Holy Spirit, only he himself can do. And that's meet us, Father, and give to us nutrition that is, um, that is suitable for where we are, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text, you'll see, really, there's primarily two questions being asked. We have one in verse 19, why then the law? We have another one which is very much related to it in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And these are natural questions if we think about the uh, context, we think about what's being argued. And if you go back to verse 10, if you will, I think we can pick up the gist of this from there. Paul's saying right there, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And in an earlier study, what we see from there, Paul's giving us a principle there that in essence is saying this, if you're going to go back to law keeping in order to be justified before Christ, well, then you better keep it all. And it's interesting, a lot of people lose a lot of sleep over the fact that Paul is not quoting Deuteronomy 27, 26 word for word there, but I think it should comfort us because what is Paul doing? I, I believe what he's doing is he's going back to Deuteronomy 27 and 28, and he's taking in the, the entirety of those chapters. He's taking in the essence of those chapters. Only to say is, listen, if you're going to go back to relying on works of law, in other words, if you're going to go back to relying on your, on your uh, personal performance in order to be justified by God, well, then you better be sure that you're obeying the whole thing in thought, word, and deed. And I, <laughs> that's not what we do, is it? We set up our own little standard, and we think about our own little standard, and we adjust our own little standard to our personal taste and personal performance, and we're even blind to that in many ways. Have you ever noticed how sometimes we're really quick to um, get after somebody that has just committed a sin that we do all the time? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Have you ever noticed how sometimes you're, you're like really irked by people who do things 
that we do all the time. A lot of this comes out in the driving, maybe. I don't know. When you're driving and somebody does something, like they don't turn on their turn signal. Why didn't they turn on their turn signal? I could have pulled out. Now I've got to wait for this whole train of cars to go by. Yet, do we always use our turn signal? You know, we customize the law, don't we? Um, We customize it. What is Paul saying here? He's saying if you're going to be justified by your personal performance, then you better be ready to uh, obey everything in thought, word, and deed. Thought, word, and deed. And, of course, verse 11 follows naturally after that. It's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And there he's quoting from Habakkuk. We saw in an earlier message, didn't we? Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul is saying something that all parties are in agreement with here. We need to understand that these agitators, whoever they are, who have come into Galatians, they're not arguing that you could be justified uh, simply by following the law. They're not arguing for that. They're saying, no, you have to have faith in Jesus. But in addition to your faith in Jesus, you need to add all this other stuff. What's Paul saying here? He's saying, no, it's evident that no one can be justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And then in verse 12, he says, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. And we kind of paraphrased that a couple of weeks ago, only to say, what what is verse 12 telling us? Well, verse 12 is telling us that this law-keeping business is radically different from living by faith. It's radically different. And if we think about it, okay, law-keeping, what are you doing? You're trying to keep the law so that sometime after whatever period is over, you can earn God's favor through your law-keeping. I know I'm not perfect, but when this life is over, I think the good things are going to outweigh the bad things. That's how it's sometimes said in the vernacular. Sometimes it's said in our culture. But even in the church, when we come into the church, if we have this performance mode going on, You know, our prayer life is going to reflect that, probably more so than anything else. At the end of the day, when we realize we've blown it, what is our hope? Our hope maybe is tomorrow we're going to do better and we're going to offset what we've done today. That's not living by faith. That's radically different than a life by faith. Well, what does a life by faith look look like? A life by faith has an eye to the cross, doesn't it? And what do we see at the cross? We see Jesus taking our sins, past, present, and future, away, don't we? That's the hardest thing. Isn't it the hardest thing? Don't you find that to be the hardest thing at night? For me, it's at night. I catch myself in this performance mode all the time. Am I the only one? If I am, that's fine. I I would like to be the only one. I'd like it for everyone else to know I have this problem. Only me. I would love that. But I have this problem where I have to continually mind myself. I can only stand in God's presence because of, the, because of the work that Jesus has done in my place. That's living by faith. Does everybody understand that? Because I can only stand in God's presence as I am clothed in the perfect righteousness that Jesus merited during his earthly pilgrimage. That's it. How radically different that is than trying to gain God's favor based on our performance. That's radically different. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have an eye to keeping God's commandments. We're going to get to that a little bit later uh, in our study, especially as we get to chapter 5. We'll get to that. But right now, remember, we're talking about justification. We're not talking about sanctification yet. We're talking about justification. In verse 13, we have 
tremendous news. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. At night, when we are condemning ourselves, when our heart condemns us, as we think about the day that we have had, we need to think about verse 13. Because it's, it's that condemnation. Have we blown it through the day? If we're feeling that way, probably. Probably guilty is charged. And that guilt can come in, that guilt can completely be in our thought life. No one else may have known anything about it, but we know our thought life to be so important, and we know that God can read our thought life. But what should this do for us? We look at verse 13, and what do we see? Jesus redeemed us from that. Jesus redeemed us from that thought life. How in the world did he do that? By becoming a curse in our place and hanging on a tree where we rightfully belong, right? It's wonderful news. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 15, to give a human example, brothers and sisters, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. We talked about a little this last, last time. And I think what Paul has in mind are the man-made covenants of the Old Testament. You know, the covenants like the famous covenant that David and Jonathan make with one another. They make that covenant... And they keep that covenant, right? That's the idea of making the covenant. And that's simply what Paul's uh, referring to. Uh, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it, no one adds to it once it's been ratified. And it's an argument from lesser to greater. If men are capable of making these covenants, and they are, and they're capable of keeping them, and they do, obviously some break those, but Jonathan and David made a covenant, they kept their covenant. I think that's the point. How much more so will God keep the covenant? You know, we're not singing it this morning, but there's a, there's a song we sometimes sing called Hesed, isn't it? What is Hesed? It's a Hebrew word for love, and it's a word that we cannot define. You know, I've been reading a book on an entire book that was written on the word Hesed, and it's practically, uh, it, you practically cannot define that word. There is no definition that actually grabs every aspect of the word chesed. We could say it's steadfast love. We could say it's unfailing love. We could say it's covenant love. That's one of my favorites. And we could go down the list. That's the love that the Lord has for his people. That's the love that he has for you if you're in Christ Jesus this morning. That's the love that he has as he extends his arms and offers salvation to all people, is it not? His arms are open, are they not? What does Jesus say? Come to me. Does he not? And it's not a suggestion. It's not like he's saying, well, it would be really nice if you'd come to me. That would just be really wonderful. It's actually in the imperative case, which means it's a command. He's commanding us to come to him. The only thing that could be stopping us would be ourselves, Right? Now, in verse 16, such an important verse, Paul says the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And it does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, we spent a lot of time in this verse, didn't we? And we did a little history of salvation where we went all the way back to Genesis 3.15. You know, and in Genesis 3.15, what do we have promised? We have promised that the offspring of the woman would defeat the offspring of the evil one, didn't we? And we saw that offspring in that passage is singular. 
And we followed that from Genesis 12, Genesis 15, looking at the promises that God gives to Abraham. And a lot of times when we read those promises that are given to Abraham, we're thinking offspring is a plural. His offspring can mean, it can be singular, it can be plural, right? The word will be written the same way. Uh, what Paul's pointing to is that ultimately all of those promises are ultimately pointing singularly to Jesus. So, for example, when God says to Abraham that through him all of the families of the earth will be blessed, what is he making a reference to? We know the answer to that, don't we? He's making a reference to a son who will be born of Abraham. Who is he? Christ Jesus. So all of the promises find their yes in Jesus. Now, verse 17 begins to set us up for our questions that we read just a few moments ago. Paul says, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So what's, what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, listen, God has come to Abraham. He's made promises to Abraham while he was still a, an idolater in his home country following other gods. And what did he say to Abraham? Abraham, I want you to go to a land I'm going to show you, and I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Paul tells us that that is the gospel. It's the gospel that's being proclaimed to Abraham. And what does Abraham do? He follows, doesn't he? He receives the promises. He embraces the promises. And he follows. And we're told that Abraham believed God, and it was what? It was counted to him as righteousness. See, that's, that's this principle of faith that Paul's talking about. Now, let's try to imagine for a moment that we're ancient Israelites, and we've been steeped in the Mosaic Law, and we have also been steeped in, the, in probably what was arguably the most popular belief of the law is that the law itself could give life. And there's a sense where the law does give life. I mean, there are verses that we could call upon that seem to suggest that if they're taken by themselves. If they're, if they're just taken by themselves and, and we don't apply the scrutiny of the rest of Scripture to them, it could almost sound like, okay, the law gives life. But there is a sense, there is a sense of life that comes from the law, if you will. Uh, if we think of Deuteronomy 27 and 28, the blessings of the covenant come to those who obey, right? There's a sense of that. Now, imagine we're ancient Israelites, and, and that would make perfect sense to us. That resonates with our fallen nature. I mean, that makes perfect sense to us. And now you've got the Apostle Paul coming along, and he's saying, no, salvation is, is not of the law. It's through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we put our faith and trust in Christ. But it's not going to be long before we're going to be asking a crucial question. What do we do with Moses? How does Moses fit into this? How does the law fit into this? Paul tells us that in verse 17, that the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Okay, so in other words, the law that's given through Moses that comes more than 400 years after all this what place does it have? Do you understand 
why that question would come up. Undoubtedly, this is something that the agitators are saying. You know, if you follow Paul, then how, how do you make sense of the law? You can almost hear someone saying that, couldn't you? How do you make sense of the law? If Paul's gospel is right, and we believe it's right in part, how do you make sense of the law then? So what is Paul going to do here? Well, Paul's going to begin to take that apart. And that brings us to verse 19. Why then the law? Paul says it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Did you get all that? Is that clear? Has everybody got it? Can we move on to verse 20? Make things real easy for the pastor. We'll just, actually, let's move on to verse 21 because I don't think verse 20 has given me any kind of break whatsoever. Well, I didn't come here asking for a break. We're going to do our best to plow through this, and I think we can, we can do it. Why then the law? Let's get, a couple, let, let's get a couple of things out of the way here. You know, we have this idea of angels. We're told that the law was, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What is that all about? Well, the Old Testament seems to be relatively silent on the fact But there are several places in the New Testament that inform us that when the law was given uh, to Moses, that it was accompanied by angels. And in some respects, this shouldn't surprise us because uh, we find angels being involved whenever major things are happening, don't we? Sometimes people will point that out. There's one passage, it's kind of obscure, it's in Job. I don't remember the passage, uh, but the passage seems to shine light that angels were present when God called the earth into existence. We also know that when uh, Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, when we celebrate every Christmas, don't we, of the angels that were present, the choir of angels that sing. When Jesus is um, undergoing the temptation, the unbridled assaults of the evil one, he's ministered to by angels, is he not? When Jesus rises from the dead, Angels are present at the tomb, aren't they? We know that. We also know that when Jesus returns, there will be angels present with him. So, I mean, I don't think this should surprise us at the giving of the law. There are angels present. Um, Verse 19, who is the intermediary that verse 19 is talking about? We're going to talk about that a little more when we get to verse 20. But who is the intermediary? Some some take the the intermediary, say that three times in a row really fast. Some say the intermediary is Christ. Doesn't fit the passage. There's been some outstanding preachers that have said that over the course of church history. Chrysostom was one ancient um, ancient preacher. The fact that we'd even mention a preacher from that long ago, uh, from the fourth, fifth century, um, means that he was an outstanding uh, preacher. Um, he took the intermediary as Christ, but it's not. It, it, most commentaries do not agree. They agree that the intermediary is Moses. Why is that? Because the law is given to Moses, isn't it? Moses comes down off the mountain carrying the tablets, doesn't he? The law is given to Moses. Okay, Moses is the intermediary. All right? Angels are present. We got that. How about the offspring? Who is the offspring? Verse 16 helps us with that. Paul tells us in verse 16 that the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring who is what? See how the Bible interprets itself? 
All right, let's fill in these blanks then. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, let, let me, allow me to fill in some of the blanks and paraphrase this verse, which I think will add some clarity to it, okay? Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until Christ should come, the one whom the promise had been made. It was put in place, angels being present, and given to Moses. Is that helpful? Does that make sense? And please take everything that I'm saying, be good Bereans. You know, the Bereans took everything that Paul said, and they studied the Scriptures to see if they were so. You know, that's what we always want to do. Don't take these things uh, because I said so. Sometimes people do that. They'll ask me questions. Well, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I know, I know that whatever I say, that's what they're going to embrace. But listen, I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the trust that many of you have in me. But you don't own this until you can see it in Scripture for yourself. And I always want you to take what I say, take it to the Scriptures. Make sure it is so, because then you'll own it. Does that make sense? Okay, let's get back up to our question. Verse 19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now, what does that mean? There's been a lot of things proposed. And I think it's, uh, in this case, normally I, I wouldn't do this, but in this case, I think it's really a helpful exercise to go through uh, five of the most popular. Uh, that might sound like a lot, but we can do it. Um, what does this mean? What does it mean that the law was added because of transgressions? There are some who will say, well, the law was added to curb or restrain sin. You've heard that before, right? Is that a true, I mean, is that a proper use of the law? Actually, it is. The law does restrain sin. It does curb sin. The, first, one, the best illustration I have of this is when I was out at doing ministry at Columbiana County Jail. And um, I, I don't remember now, it's been too long ago, I don't remember how long I'd been out there, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half. I wasn't in jail, by the way. I was going out there every couple of weeks. My wife has taught me to be clear on that. I've given several talks about this, and I ask her in the car, how did it go? She goes, oh, it went great. Everyone thinks you were in jail. <laughs> like, okay, I need to clarify this. I, I was only there to do services. They let me leave when I was done. But I went in there one day, and one of the correction officers um, called me aside, and they had a clipboard kind of like this one, and it had graphs on it. And they would say, we want you to see something. They had um, kept track of all of the inmates that had been attending the services that I was leading. And the, the graph showed the behavioral, the behaviors, if you will, of the inmates who had begun to attend the services. And it was almost unanimous. All of the um, inmates that started to attend, and I was only going out there every other week. Um, the inmates, you could see their behaviors on the chart just go like this to where they were pretty much manageable. And I, I was like, wow, that's, that's really... That's really good. I mean, typically in the male population, this wasn't the case in the misdemeanors. This, this didn't cover the first, the first population I would do would be ma male misdemeanors. And they didn't have them on there. And the, the male misdemeanor population never got a lot of traction in that. People weren't serious there. Uh, they were, you had a lot of DUIs. You had a lot of people be locked up for child support and everything. And it was hard to, sometimes I felt like I was 
you, sometimes you feel like you're wasting your time. It felt like I was almost babysitting. I really did. But when you got into the full service um, jail, you, you were dealing with people who were in a lot of trouble. There was a women's population and a male population. It was those two populations they showed. And typically there were about 30 women in the service that I would do, and there were about that many, sometimes more men. And you could see their, their, their behavior. It, would just, it just dove. I mean, it went from up here down to here to where they become very manageable. Now, when I saw that chart, did I think for a minute that all these people would come to saving faith in Christ? No. In fact, I knew for certain that they hadn't. Well, then what's going on? What's going on is God's law does restrain behavior. It does curb behavior. Uh, Another illustration we have is in our own culture. As we've removed the commandments from the from the courthouse walls of this country, as we've removed God from the popular uh, vernacular of this country, as we have removed God out of our society, what has happened? We have become increasingly lawless. And unless we bring him back in, we have no, really no real hope that anything's going to change. It's probably going to get worse. Am I right? So some people say this is what Paul's talking about. Um, God gave the law to curb uh, behavior. Um, second, secondly, you'll have people say, well, the law has been given to reveal sin. It's been given to reveal sin. So when Paul says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Okay, it was added to reveal sin. Now, in favor of that interpretation, let's go back to Romans. And we're going to be going back and forth between Galatians and Romans here. So those who take that position... We'll point to Romans chapter 3, for example, in verse 20. Turn back to page 941, where Paul says, For by works of the law no human being will be justified. See the parallel? That sounds like Galatians, doesn't it? For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. That is one of the uses of the law. So advocates for this will say this is, this is what Paul means in Galatians 3. Is there? You see it right there. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, if you look at Romans 7, and you look at verse 7, Paul's saying this again. Sometimes this verse will be quoted. Romans 7, verse 7. What, shall we, what then shall we say? The law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, not said, you shall not covet. So does the law reveal sin? Of course it does. Of course it does. Of course it does. Now, others will say, okay, what Paul means here is that the law was given to increase sin. What do we mean by increasing sin? Let's look at uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Notice what it says there. Romans 5, verse 20. The law came in to increase what? The trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay, is that one of the uses of the law? Paul's making it really clear that it is. It increases it. If you again go to chapter 7 and you look at verse 5, 
Here we get, we get an expansion on that theme. Verse 5, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by what? Aroused by the law, having died, um, aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And if you look down to verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. If we read verses 7 and 8 together, it might be helpful. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, what's that all about? Great illustration of that is when little junior starts to crawl and little junior starts to get some basic motor control and discovers that he can open up the cabinets. He can now open up the kitchen cabinet, you know, like under the sink, that cabinet where all that poisonous stuff is contained, right? And it's pretty harmless at the start because little junior opens the door and, and he's just... He's just enthralled over the fact that, look, with these little arms, these things, I can grab this door and I can open the door and look at the door, you know, open it goes and shot back and forth, right? All is well until mom says, now you're not supposed to be in there. Really? Now, what's he want to do after that? Oh, he can't help it, can he? Actually, there's a sense where he's really... He's, he's going, you're going to, it's going to be everything you can to keep him out of that cupboard after that law came. Sin seizing an opportunity, right? Why? It's because he's a little lawbreaker. That's why. And the difference between him and us is we're just a little bigger. Right? Oftentimes, being told you can't do something just makes you miserable. And you know, you might not even think about wanting to do something. A sign that says keep out. Or a sign that says, you know, okay, you're not allowed beyond this point. What do you want? All you want to do is go beyond this point. As soon as the law comes, it says you're not allowed beyond this point. And that's what people will say. They'll say, okay, what's, what's Paul talking about in Galatians chapter 3, verse 19? What's he talking about here? Uh, why then the law? Well, it was added to increase sin. That's what they'll say. Now, there's a fourth one. That the law turns sin into transgression. Um, the law turns sin into transgression. Look at Romans 4.15 with me. Romans 4 and verse 15. Paul says there, for the law brings wrath. That's simple enough. Why would the law bring wrath? Because we're lawbreakers. But where there is no law... There's no what? Transgression. There's something important for us to understand about the word transgression. We could define transgression by saying transgression is sin, and that wouldn't be a wrong definition. But transgression actually is describing something a little more specific than that. Sin is just a, a, would be too broad to really get to the nitty-gritty of transgression. Transgression is when we trans, if you will, or trespass, if you will, over a known boundary. So, for example, we find ourselves in a difficult situation, maybe one we've never been in before, and we're trying to figure our way through it. 
So we take a course of action, but very, very soon in this course of action, we discover that this course of action is sinful. Okay, up to this point, we have not committed transgression, but we have committed sin. Does that make sense? If we continue on the path, however, knowing that there's a line and we cross the line, that's transgression. So a transgression is when we take a known law of God and we violate it. And that's why Paul in verse, four, uh, verse 15 here can say, for the law brings wrath, but where there's no law, there is no transgression. There would still be sin. Have you ever, you ever been puzzled about that verse and say, okay, what does that mean? If there's no law, then we could just do whatever we want and we wouldn't be sinning? No, you'd still be sinning. But you wouldn't be transgressing because you wouldn't have that line to cross over. So we can see that transgression is even worse than sin, Right? Uh, would obviously carry a higher penalty, if you will. Um, if we look at chapter 5, verse 20 again, and we see there, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So there we see it, the law comes in and increases the trespass. Our conscience could bear us witness. We might not have the law, but our conscience bears us witness, and we realize that what we're doing is in violation of our conscience. We realize what we're doing is wrong. So what would the law do under those circumstances? The law would increase the trespass, wouldn't it? You follow all that? I know it's not easy. It takes some thought. Um, so let's go back to Galatians 3 again, and let's just say, well, what about, you know, how are we to make sense of all of these? Well, I don't know that there isn't a little bit of all of this in there. Um, some, take, some take number one, the law was meant to curb sin. Some take number two, the law reveals sin. Some takes number three, the law increased sin. Some take number four, the law turns sin into transgression. That's an, it, it's very similar to increasing it, right? Because it's more heinous when we know it's wrong and we do it anyways. You know, if little Junior gets into something he's not supposed to get into, he might realize he shouldn't be doing this. But after his mom tells him he's not allowed in it no more, okay, he's in more trouble when he gets in it after that, isn't he? Obviously, because it's worse. Now, I told you. First time I think you knew you were doing wrong. I think you knew better. But I told you not to do this. Now, all of us have heard those words, haven't we? Hopefully, I'm, well, actually, hopefully I am the only one who's heard this word. I hope none of you heard those words growing up. <laughs> but my mom is present here this morning, and I heard those words come out of her lips more than once. Where, that's probably where I learned them and got them down. I mean, those are words we hear over and over again as we're growing up, don't we? Regardless of which one of these we take, I think we'll all agree that the law shows us our need of Christ, and that's number five. Doesn't it? The law shows us our need of Christ. Where would we be without Jesus? And this takes us back to verse 13, doesn't it? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we could all agree, regardless of whatever one of these we want to take or if we want to take all of them, I kind of think I... I, I, I it's a difficult choice to make. Um, if someone wants to take any one of those, I, I think Douglas Moo makes a pretty good 
argument for number four, that the law turns sin into transgression. I think he makes a good argument for that. If you want to take any of those, I think it's great, but be sure you take number five. The law shows us our need of Christ. The law shows us our need of Christ. Now, let's, let's look at verse 20. Notice what Paul says there. An intermediary applies more than one, but God is one. Now, what does that mean? Have you ever scratched your head over that verse? You can scratch your head over that verse until you don't have any hair in the place where you're scratching. What does that mean? The best explanation that I have heard on verse 20 goes something like this. The law is given through Moses and from Moses to the people, right? So there's an intermediary. Whereas the promise is given to Abraham directly by God. Okay, and an intermediary applies more than one, right? But God is one. And when we read this statement that God is one, we should be thinking, I, there's probably no doubt, as much as Paul's been leaning on the Old Testament scriptures here, there's no doubt that the Jewish Shema is in view there. What is the Jewish Shema? Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. That there is one God. And what are the implications of the fact that there's one God? Well, there's one everything. There's one gospel. There's one Savior. There's one faith. There's one baptism. There's one way of salvation. There's one bread. There's one cup. There's one people of God. There's not a Jewish church and a Gentile church. Our God is one. There's one singular people of God. There's one group of people who are children of God. And in the case of the law, God gives his law to Moses. Moses, in turn, gives the law to the people. The intermediary applies to more than one. But in the case of the promise, God gives the promise to Abraham, doesn't he? And in turn, he gives that promise to us directly. And I think what this serves to do, I think what verse 20 is serving, if we ask ourselves what, you know, you get an exam and someone says, okay, I want you to explain what, what role is verse 20 playing in Paul's overall argument, I can tell you what I'll write down. I'll have to maybe, might have to get to heaven and ask the Lord before we get the answer to find out how well we did on this. But I think the, the answer here is what Paul is showing is the promise is so much greater If you look at just the way the promise comes, it's greater. The law comes through an intermediary, doesn't it? God brings the promise himself. Doesn't he bring the promise himself to Adam and Eve in the garden? He comes himself and they hear him coming in the cool of the day. And he brings the promise, doesn't he? I think by now our minds are probably ready to be done. We'll see if I can get through the closing hymn and we'll close in prayer. How's that sound? Does that sound good? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, Father. We thank you for this as we have reviewed and surveyed the uses of the law, Father. And we'll look at this again, Lord. We're hearing all this for the first time. Our heads are probably spinning. We're probably thinking, goodness, 
And so many are missing this morning, Lord. We have so many people missing. This needs to be, we need to treat this again and again. Well, Father, we pray that you, you will help us, O oh Lord. Help us to digest these truths. Help us, O oh Lord, to um, take these truths in, Lord. Help us, O oh Father, to see the vast difference between law-keeping and living by faith. Father, we, um, we pray lastly, Lord, that you'll fix our eyes upon you in Christ Jesus, Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen.